In relationships, positivity tends to be kind of a domino effect. As you do really small things, one or two or three small things, that gets reciprocated a little bit and you can build on it. So there's really nothing too small to try, um, especially if you can do it frequently. That was today's guest, my colleague, Dr. Tyler Jamison. Dr. Jamison is an associate professor in the Department of Human Development and Family Studies here at the University of New Hampshire. My name is Mark Bonica, and I am an associate professor in the Department of Health Management and Policy, also here at the University of New Hampshire, and you are listening to Flourishing in the World, a podcast exploring what it means to live a worthy life. Dr. Jamison specializes in the study of romantic relationships. In this podcast, we discuss romantic relationships and emerging adults, and then talk more generally about behaviors that help romantic relationships thrive through the years. I hope you enjoy this podcast, and if you do, won't you leave us a rating on iTunes, Spotify, Google, or wherever you may be listening. Or better yet, share it with a friend. Thanks for listening, and here is Dr. Tyler Jamison. Welcome to the podcast, Tyler. Hi, it's fun to be here. I should say again. So this is, um, so we have done a podcast before on my other podcast, The Health Leader Forge, where we talked a lot about your background and your prior research and so forth. So so I'm going to kind of skip the longer introduction, give you a second Mm -hmm. to kind of introduce who you are, uh, what do you study and, and, uh, and then we'll kind of jump into the meat. And if folks want to listen to more about your background, I'll put a link to the other interview we did in the show notes. But uh, so tell me a little bit about yourself so we can so we can and what we're going to talk about. That sounds great. So my name is Tyler Jamison, and I'm an associate professor at the University of New Hampshire. Um, and I study romantic development. I study the ways that people build the capacity to build and maintain the types of romantic relationships they want. And typically people do this throughout their lives, starting with their relationships in their families and then with their peers and ultimately with, for most people, more than one romantic partner over time. And so I'm really interested, especially in how young adults deal with um, all of the different aspects of romantic development that happen during that time. From the time you're about 18 to the time you're about 30, um, a lot is happening for folks in figuring out what they want out of their partnerships or what they want out of being a single person. And so that's what I study, all of those processes. Um, And I use mostly qualitative methods. So I do a lot of interviewing, and that leads to a lot of really rich information about how people develop romantically. And so I also want to give you a chance, uh, you have, uh, to talk about your blog. You have a blog with Psychology Today. Uh, So what are you doing over at Psychology Today? Yeah. So about two years ago, I was invited to start blogging for Psychology Today And I started a page that I call Assembly Required. Um, For some reason, I have a real, I I have a real interest in thinking about couples trying to build cheap furniture together. Like I think if there was a single (laughs) test we could make for folks to decide if they're compatible for marriage, it would be like put together an Ikea dresser. It can't be easy. It can't be a bookshelf. That's no, too easy. Um, It's got to be something with drawers in it. But I, I realized in thinking more about that, that really relationships in my view and in my research require effort. They require um, building something. They don't just happen out of nowhere. Um, but in real life, people really do have to um, 
over time and through experiences together, figure out how to be together. So that's what the blog is about. And it's a place where I get to translate the research that I do for a much broader audience. So most of my work is published in journals that you have to pay to access and that are written for other scientists. So they're just not written in a way that's very friendly or accessible. And so this is my place. I get to do that. And it's a lot of fun. And we are going to uh, we're going to talk about a few of those articles today uh, to kind of guide our conversation. And I will put some links to them in the show notes. And I want to just say that it's you you have a, a fun voice on that blog, and I think people should check it out because it, it's a it's a it's a it, you do make it really you make rather dry research writing very accessible in your blog. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so, all right. So the theme of this podcast is talking about kind of human flourishing and, you know, a pursuit of living a better life and being a better human. Um, so why, uh, why are romantic relationships important for human flourishing? a great place to start. We've known for a very long time that humans have a basic need to belong. So uh, along with our other basic physical needs for shelter and food and water, we also as social creatures have a need to be in close relationships with at least one or two other people. Um, we don't have to have a huge social network, but we need some. And for most people, though not all, um, that need to belong is satisfied in part by a romantic relationship. Most people want to have a long-term romantic relationship. Many people want to get married, though not all. And so romantic relationships are really one of the ways that we um, build that sense of being really close to someone else, having emotional intimacy and closeness, um, and having someone else to sort of be a witness to our lives, right? Um, and so we also, in the re relationship research, have established pretty closely that the quality of your relationships has enormous bearing on your physical health, on your mental health, um, and broadly on your well-being. I really like that you have framed this around flourishing because it's moving toward the positive, right? right? So we're not trying to avoid negative outcomes. We're trying to move toward lives that are filled with meaning and connection, and flourishing really does that. Um, I've done some work where flourishing is one of the outcomes we use, and several of the items in that flourishing scale are about your relationships to others. They're literally about um, whether you feel respected by other people. Um, they're about whether you um, have social relationships that are, are supportive and rewarding. They're about whether you can actively contribute to the happiness and well-being of others. Many of us do those things through our relationships broadly and our romantic relationships in particular. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, I, I spend a fair amount of time thinking about um, and, and researching on meaning, um, meaningful work and meaningful careers. You know, you used a couple of words that I just that I go back to. I have this little heuristic that I've been kind of using in my own uh, public writing, talking about meaning is a function of of contribution. So what you talked about, like making a contribution in a relationship, connection, of course, relationships are connections, and then uh, competence. I, so I think of meaning as those three, the, I call them the three C's. And, and I see, I see, and kind of what you just kind of said was like, if we have a good, solid relationship, you know, 
there's there's we're making a contribution we have a sense of making a contribution we clearly have a connection and we're going to talk a little bit about competence i think in some because we were talking about this right before we started like what is it that we do to make these relationships work mm-hmm. but I, um so let's talk a little bit you you said you're in, in, interested in that younger adult so we've talked a little bit about emerging adulthood mm-hmm. what is emerging adulthood yeah so emerging adulthood is a developmental stage from about the ages of 18 to 29, where at least in the Western world and where there's a fair amount of privilege, people have a little bit of a moratorium on adulthood. They're not immediately thrust into caregiving roles or um, financial independence or supportive roles for a marriage partner. And so they're able to explore their identities a little bit more and also their options for career and their options for romantic partnership. So it's just a time when people have a little bit of space that they're not under the thumb of their family of origin. And they're also not entrenched in the tasks of adulthood to sort of figure themselves out. And there's a really burgeoning area of research about this group and how they make their way through that time. I was uh, I was just doing a presentation uh, it was about two weeks ago, uh, and I was talking a little bit about emerging adulthood and its interaction with the school to work transition. Um, and I was looking at some historical data from the, um, you're, you may be familiar with the Bowling Green National Center for Family and Marriage Research. Oh yeah, that's so a great group. Mm-hmm. They have some really cool graphs. And I was looking at um, historically the a- average age of first marriage and like going back to, and I was talking about Erickson and his theories of, you know, uh, that we still draw on a lot about, about identity development, yes. all these stages. <clears throat> and of course he wrote that back in like the 1950s. And, um, you know, and he was talking about, you used the phrase moratorium, holding off on kind of making that transition to adulthood. And he was talking about, you know, in the fifties, people were hitting full adulthood at 18. And it was kind of interesting seeing from the data from Bowling Green, um, they had, you know, average age of first marriage in like 1960 was like 20. Um, oh yeah. Or, or maybe, yeah, it was 20 and then like average and and about the same for average age of first, a woman having her first child was right in that window. Mm -hmm. Whereas today, if you're college educated in the United States, the average for age of marriage is like 28 and the average age of a first child is 30 really, but, but this is, you know, and we hadn't talked about this, but they also show that if you're a high school grad, you're still like really back in the sixties, you're still getting married and, or having a child at like early twenties. Yeah. There's a huge divide. We call it in my field, we call it the marriage divide between people who have a college education and people who don't their trajectories for forming families are just really different. Yeah. And so people with a college education are likely to more likely to get married, stay married, get married later and have a child later, like all of those things than people who have a high school education. How, so how much does how much does emerging adulthood like apply to is it is it that much of a class based thing you think with like education and and financial resources uh, that kind of shapes this this emerging adulthood period? There's a lot of debate in this little subfield of emerging adulthood about this, and so I'll tell you kind of where I fall on it, and that is I think that. There are five characteristics of emerging adulthood, and many of them also show up for lower income folks, folks with less education, but it shows up in different ways. So let's take um, 
financial independence is not one of the characteristics, but instability is one of the characteristics, right? So instability for someone going to college might look like having unpaid internships and moving twice a year to and from school and back to other places. For a young adult that's not in college, instability might look more like not being able to get a living wage job. And so maybe continuing to live with your family because you can't financially afford to move out and go out on your own because of the unavailability of the type of, of the type of work that you need. So I think it shows up a little differently. I, I do think that even among people who don't go to college, there's a longer trajectory toward full, full on financial independence and caregiving roles than there are for people who go to, than there used to be. I, yeah. I, I, I'm I'm driving us off topic already a little bit, uh, but I just got you know. But that's but amazing that fun. Has, but that has to do with uh, their formation of long term romantic relationships as well, right? Yeah, I mean, it absolutely does. If you're living at home with with mom and dad or, or or whatever, it's harder to establish that. I would assume. Yeah, absolutely. And something else we know from interviewing, and this this research is getting old, but it was revolutionary. So I'm going to still call upon it. Um, we used to kind of assume that lower income folks or people with less education did not value marriage as much. And that's why they were a little less likely to get married. But when we actually, you know, ethnographers embedded themselves into these communities and talked to them, we found out, no, low income merit, low income folks value marriage so much that they want to have a certain level of financial stability and other things in place before they get married. Um, and they were struggling to reach those benchmarks that they had set for themselves and therefore weren't choosing to get married, which is very different from not valuing marriage enough to enter into it. Just a bit of a different ordering based on what you yes. have available. Right? Yeah. And what your priorities are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so so let's talk a little bit about uh, you have this this fun post um, three things we should learn from our past relationships uh, where you talk about how ex-partners have taught participants valuable lessons about about relationships. So does breaking up really lead to better relationships? Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, it sounds counterintuitive. It does sound counterintuitive, but I had a colleague who went to grad school with me who loved to say, I just love to encourage students to break up early and often. And it's such good advice. Um, breakups are painful and difficult. Everyone sort of acknowledges that. But in my work, it's really clear from looking at people's relationship histories. So one of the big studies I did was a qualitative study where I interviewed people about every partner they've ever had. And there were really meaningful things that people gained and learned in terms of their romantic development from being in relationships that didn't work out. They found out things about what they wanted and didn't want in a partner, both, what, both for that person, what do I want from them and who do I want to be in a relationship? Sometimes people would say, I realize like, ooh, I do not like who I was when I was with that person and I want to be different in other relationships that I per pursue. And so there was just a lot to learn about the types of partners, um, the types of boundaries that people need and want. So, you know, how much independence do you like? versus how much togetherness do you like? We have different desires for that. We have different um, levels of tolerance for that. And we have to find out what we want and find a partner that's compatible with those things. So yeah, having relationships that don't don't work out are really important and meaningful for a you, lot of people. You 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 kind of used a phrase you said um uh this people sometimes people find out 
that they were a different person in a relationship. Um, so that kind of leads me back to like that question about like how do relationships make us uh, or or shape us for that idea of flourishing? Can you expand a little bit on that? Like how do how do how do how does how do how does how does uh, being in a relationship with a particular person shape us? Um, uh, uh, and and maybe in either a good way or a bad way, and your you know, breakup ideally be hopefully you're getting out of something that's shaping you in a bad way. But can you talk a little bit about how relationships have that impact on us? Yeah, I mean, partners in long term relationships become a little bit more similar over time. We influence each other, especially in our very closest relationships. So we are going to change um, in relationship to another person that we're with, and. That could be in the ways that we communicate and interact with that person. It could be changes in our worldview. You know, when you have someone in your life um, really close to you with their own worldview, you're going to share some of that with each other. I like to joke around with my husband that I have like a voice of him in my brain that I apply to problem solving, to interactions with other people. And I'll, I'll come home and I'll be like, you know, I got an email today. And I just like put on my rich voice and I was like, okay, how would he respond to this email? And that's how I figured it out. And that's from enough years together that I have a, a core sense of him that resides in me. And in a relationship that's happy and healthy and stable, like I would consider mine to be, that is all in the positive, right? It's made me better. It's made me a better problem solver. It's made me... um a little bit less sensitive to to difficult things that come along because I have different perspective about it. So I think the field has shown us that we grow toward our partners over time. Yeah. And certainly if those are healthy and positive, then we are better for being in those relationships. But if the relationship is not super healthy, that tends to undermine our individual well-being um, in pretty important ways, particularly for women. So good relationships make us better as individuals. Tough relationships really challenge us as individuals. Yeah. Yeah. My, my, I mean, I've been married to my wife now for 31 years, I think it is now. Wow. And uh, I would have to say like, she is the, you know, when I, I, I have, um, I admire her just, just an amazing sense of right and wrong, um, just really strong sense of morality that I feel like I have grown from in the years mm -hmm. that we've been together and just, you know, just has a, you know, just a strong sense of family and and really what's important uh, mm. and much less easily distracted than me. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a, you know, that, that I'd say having been with her has been made me a better person. So it's a, it's a nice thing. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. So uh, shifting a little bit, I, I, I included this quote when I, in my notes I sent over to you. It's uh, Leo Tolstoy's novel, Anna Karenina. Um, and there's this famous line. He says, all happy families are alike and each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Um, are you familiar with that quote? Had you heard that before? No, I hadn't. Okay. So I did I, not make my way through Anna Karenina. <laughs> <laughs> I can't say I have, I have not either. But I've heard okay, that makes me feel better. Of, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I'd like to pretend I'm that literary. I have no. Not I'm not it. a true intellectual. <laughs> I'm just nosy. Like I yeah, do all yeah. of my research because I'm nosy about people's love lives. That's right, right. And that's what makes us qualitative researchers. You're just like, Indeed. hey, tell us about whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I just like that 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 
that quote because it kind of implies happy families are happy because they do a they have sort of a a set of things that they do right. Um, I is and and that's what I I, I was as I was preparing to talk to you. Um, I kind of took that quote and I wanted to spin it in my head a little bit and, and instead say instead of happy family say happy romantic all happy romantic relationships are alike in the sense that they're doing or some set of things that make romantic relationships work. And do you have a sense of, um, are there some things that, that make relationships work? Okay. So I have a yes. And here. So (laughs) the first is I saw, I saw this quote in the notes and I thought this is so interesting because I have literally said in conversations with my husband, I think that there are many, many ways to do relationships well, and only a handful of ways that we are universally bad for relationships. So it's almost the inverse, right? Okay. All right. Lots and lots and lots of things you can do that are going to build something up. And we'll, I'll talk about that in a second. Yeah. Um, That can build up a relationship, make you more likely to have just like positive, good vibes and interactions. But there's only really a handful of things that we just kind of universally say, these are not healthy and helpful for folks. And so we, we try to wholesale avoid that set. But I know that your goal here is to really talk about the positive, like how can we move toward something that we want to be doing instead of moving away from those handful of things. And to be less vague, I'm talking about sort of manipulative behavior, abusive behavior, certainly any type of physical violence, um, any type of coercion, any type of sort of putting down, belittling, making someone feel small or stupid or insignificant, like those really have no place in healthy relationships kind of ever. And we see them more in younger people and we tend to get a little better at that as we go. But we want to have as much communication as possible to folks about how to avoid those things. Yeah. But that's not what we're here to do. So can I pause you? So I would say that the, I would say that those things you just described, like um, belittling, contempt, uh, violence, all those things, can you know there's a relatively small maybe there's a relatively small number of them but they manifest in so many ways yes that's a fair way to say that yeah and i think and i think maybe we could say that maybe you know there's a relatively small number of things that are destructive to to relationships as well as maybe a relatively small number of of kind of categories of things that Mm. are are productive or supportive of relationships and then and they also manifest in many ways, right? But it's the underlying, um, but you're the expert. So I think I that's a great it. insight. No, Mark, I think that's a really, really good insight and probably holds a lot of truth because my second part of my response was going to be, yes, let me flip this. But if you really <laughs> put my feet to the fire and asked me, what are the things that people need to be doing? I could name some. Okay. So you're right. I think there are categories of things that we have to do. And it's really the manifestations that are so broad. That's so, right. but they look so completely many. different between my wife and and I and your that, husband and you and right. yeah, um, yeah. Well, yeah, let's talk about some of those. So you had a so let me. I'm going to throw one out there because you had this okay. this nice post called the most important part of a thriving relationship, which kind of plays into the the topic. And and so, what is the most important part of a thriving relationship from your post? I argue that it's trust. Okay. Not communication. Um, 
Right. You, you say that, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, you know, folks love to talk about the importance of communication and that doesn't mean it's unimportant. Certainly the way that you talk to your partner matters a ton. Yeah. Um, and the way you communicate in other ways matters a lot. But at the very core of picking a long-term partner is believing that they are going to make decisions that have your best interest in mind all the time. And so when I conceptualize trust here, I'm not talking about cheating. That's certainly one part of it, but it's the part we talk about the most and that I don't think is the necessarily the most important part. Many of us who want to be monogamous have that basic sense of, okay, we've agreed together. We're going to only be together. But there's an underlying other sense of trust that really starts when we're very young children for the people that are around us that needs to translate to our partners too, where we think in a, in a tough situation or on an average day, either one, you're going to be looking out for me and you're not going to do things intentionally to hurt me. And I think um, from that foundation is where we really build strong relationships. I have a story that inspired that post, if you want to tell it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I almost put it in there. I asked my sister-in-law if I could put it in there, and she said yes, but it ended up not not fitting quite well. But my sister-in-law um, is married to my husband's brother. She is a recent addition to our family, and she was previously married. And she told me that her ex-husband used to take her to the movie sometimes. Like they would just plan to go to a movie and he would tell her they were going to see movie A and then he would take her to horror film B, even though he knew she didn't like it. Oh. It scared her. Like some people love horror films and some people just hate them. I am in the hate them category. I, I, I am do, too. I hate them. That is not the, you know, I'm just not into it. Right. And he knew this about her, but he would do it to her anyway. And he did it more than once. And I said, that fundamental, that is fundamental. It seems so superficial, like, oh, how stupid he took her to a movie she didn't expect. But it also describes the ways in which she then couldn't trust him to do what was best for her, what was comfortable for her, what was reasonable for her. Um, and it kind of was a superficial example of a much deeper problem. So I think when we, in the positive, when we can inspire trust in our partners, it gives them a way to feel sort of safely um, in relationship with us. And that is fundamentally important. So are you going to look out for me? Are you taking me and my needs into consideration? And I can count on that even when I'm not able to make the decisions for myself. Yes, absolutely. So what else, like what else? So we've got trust, right? Building that yeah. trust. What else are kind of the general rules for uh, making a relationship work? I've done a lot of thinking over the, over my career about what it means to do work in a relationship. We kind of say relationships take work and especially marriage takes work. And I agree, but I've, spend some time thinking about what types of work are the healthiest and most productive for us. Like, where should we be putting our energy when we say relationships take work? And I think one of the places we can put it is to try to bring kind of the best version of ourselves into our relationships on a very micro level, day-to-day -day basis. I think sometimes when we're in very long relationships, we start to feel like we shouldn't have to be like polite or like 
kind. You know, like we should just <laughs> be able to be our grittiest selves, darn it. Yeah, right. And I would say, yes, and yes, y- you should be able to come into your relationship on your worst day and be your worst self and have a partner who's still going to be like, I still have you. It's okay. This is this is not your best. And yeah, I'll still take you. And on your average day, to be able to bring into the relationship the thank you for making dinner. It's really nice not to have to cook. The um, asking a question instead of demanding something like, hey, can you take the dog out? I really don't want to, <laughs> right? <laughs> you can do it. It doesn't mean that you have to have stuffy formality in your relationship, but just extending to your partner the courtesies that you might extend to a colleague that you work with or a friend that you have, leaving yourself enough energy and capacity in yourself to give your partner some of that, give yeah. them some of that just like common niceties type of thing matters a ton for how partners feel about each other and how just generally positive and happy their relationships are day to day. And I just acknowledge that takes effort. Like It is not easy to do those things day after day. But it's probably the most important thing we can do for each other. So come like coming home from work, you're each coming in for the day instead of unloading every time uh, about what's happening. You maybe check in first and make some space for some kindness, right? Yeah, you got to make. I mean, I've heard this kind of you know you got to make deposits. Um, yes, repeatedly, right? So you're talking about just like I'm, I'm putting a couple of pennies in each day, rather than you know. Um, rather than making a big extravagant anything, on, it's got to be small things on an ongoing basis. Yes, absolutely. You can't. It's hard to compensate for daily grumpiness and sniping with an occasional really awesome vacation. Yeah. Like take the awesome vacation if you can, but it's the day to day way that you talk to somebody that gives them a fundamental sense of being cared for and loved and accepted. And so that's the place where it makes the most sense to put our energy. Yeah. I mean, I guess coming home, I'm about to walk in the door and I'm like, I take a deep breath. I'm like, is, is what I'm about to face going to be awful or is it going to be great? And I just don't know. Yeah. Uh, that would be, that would wear me down day in and day out. Yeah. I think it uh, does. Even if there's a really great thing every now and then. Yeah. I also think a lot about, you know, running a household and a family is a lot of work. And so feeling some sense of mutual appreciation for just the slog, it's a slog. There's always dishes. There's always laundry. Like there's just always stuff to be doing and having some sense that the other person is like eyeball to eyeball, like, well, we're still in the slog together. And also that there's some appreciation when somebody picks up some of the slack is a, is a really meaningful thing, especially in the stages of life where there's just endless amounts of work to be doing. We have like we have this un- completely unspoken code at my house that if I come into a space and my husband is folding a basket of laundry, I stop and I fold the laundry with him until it's done. Like it is for me to walk past him folding laundry, I need to be like real ill or helping somebody else with something else, right? And it's just a way to show this isn't totally your job. This is our job. So we're just going to do it. It'll be faster if it's both of us. And it's a way of just showing that regard for each other. Those are like the small things that I think add up in a super meaningful way. So 
speaking of kind of mundane things, you're currently working on a study uh, where you are asking people to tell you stories about when they felt love. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. How did that study come about? Uh, and what do you, what do you, and I know it's still in process, but what are you finding? Yeah. So this study is really interesting on, on several levels. Um, I'm having the students that are taking my class right now interview people in their lives. And so I'm not actually collecting these stories. My students are. Okay. And it's students in an introductory class. So there's, you know, 65 or 70 students each semester. I'm about to collect my third semester's worth of these interviews. And basically, students facilitate a conversation between two people where they ask each other the question, tell me a story about a time you felt loved by me. And the idea is that they would narrate some specific event where they just felt particularly loved and supported by this person. The people that are doing these interviews are doing it for a class assignment, but they have an option to let me see their stories as part of my research. And I was surprised to find that the vast majority of people say yes. So I now have about 100 couples worth of stories, and I'm working with a team of students to code and try to understand them. And I'm not, I I won't say I was totally surprised by this, but maybe I was surprised the extent of it, that these stories are about totally banal things about day-to-day life. I'm asking you for the one story that tells me when you felt most loved by your partner and you're saying, when they make me lunch in the morning, or uh, there's a, a couple really sweet ones where people talked about things that were unconscious to the partner. So someone said, you know, I usually stay up later than you and you'll fall asleep and in your sleep, you'll roll over and you'll, you'll touch me and say, I love you in your sleep. And I love it because you don't even know you're doing it. It's just somewhere deep in you. Um, And so there's these just very lovely everyday gestures of positive regard and positive interaction that seem to mean the most to someone when they're actually asked about it. It's, it's been really interesting to see. So it's, the, it's not the, I knew you loved me when you took me to Hawaii for two weeks or nope. gave me this huge diamond or whatever. No. And I mean, those pop up sometimes, like a, an engagement is a time that's like a big event, but that's maybe 12 stories out of 100 is that. Um I actually was looking at our, the coding is ongoing, but I was looking at the coding this morning and literally we have a code called little things. And it's, these, <laughs> it's these tiny, it's these like just smaller gestures of sometimes people leave each other post-its that say nice things, those kind of things. Um, and it is the most, it's the most commonly used code in our the kind of scheme right now is the little things. Um, and the second most common is feeling safe is ways that partners create environments that just make us feel safe. And I think that comes back to the trust piece. Trust, right, right. Right. So these things are- You're not going to take me to a horror movie when you said we're going to go see something. Right. You know, That's a, right. That's a, right. A rom-com, so, right? Yeah. Good Lord. <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad she moved out of that situation and married my brother-in-law, who's a lovely human being who would never do that. So yeah. that, that um, as you said, those those little things- seems to tie into another researcher that you've you've referenced before uh Gottman and his theory of bids yeah it, yeah so- Gottman's research um from the 90s is still really influential in how we think about 
sort of relationship maintenance. Like how do we do well by each other? And when we look specifically at people who are really thriving in their relationships, what kinds of things are they doing? And one of the things that he found is that they're making lots of small efforts that, um, you know, he calls them bids, as you mentioned, bids for interaction, bids for positive things. So I can give you a couple of examples that are straight from him. So doing things like um, paying attention to what someone says, this seems so ridiculous, but especially in an environment where we all have our phones out a lot and it's really tempting to be multitasking or scrolling and you're not always totally listening, just paying attention to what someone said is a bid. Um, sometimes at my house, I will catch myself not hearing my spouse and I'll have to be like, I'll put my phone down and be like, I totally did not hear that. Can you like swing that back to me one more time? That's a bid in itself that I don't let it pass. I just say like, oh, I'm really sorry. What did you say? (laughs) Like, try again. (laughs) Um, and, and and then we do when I think it's, it, it, it makes a, a better exchange showing interest in active excitement about things that are going well for your partner. You know, they come home from work and they say like, hey, I I, I had a really good meeting today. And I, I you know, I just, it, it went really well to not be like, okay. But just say like, oh, that's great. I, I love that you had a good day. That's, that, that's good. Sharing the events of the day, chatting, responding to a joke. Like truly, if my husband never laughed at my jokes, it would be a really sad time at my house. <laughs> even though they're not always funny. Like I got to count on him to laugh even when, or when I've told the joke before. Right. Now we all have bits that we do. Oh yeah, yeah. We tell yeah. the same story over and we over. We tell the same story. Like, you know, oh, yeah. some of us don't have that's that many funny one. stories. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I've never I want heard you that to before. laugh the second time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so these like these are small things. Being physically affectionate is one. Um, and that can be, you know, people have different comfort levels with that, but those small things really make a big difference. And he calls them bids. And what what he really talked about with that too was when someone makes a bid, right? They're going to tell you about their day or they're going to tell you that joke or they're going to reach for your hand. Are you are you as a spouse then turning toward that? Are, are you engaging with it? Are you responding in a positive way to it? Those That combined interaction, I'm going to make a bid for us to have some positive interaction and you're going to respond positively. That is the stuff that builds very strong relationships over time. So it's going back to what you're talking about that capacity, kind of mm-hmm. making the the bids are the small, your responses to the bids, I guess, are the are the kind of the the small deposits that we're making day in day out. It's the banal uh, stories from your little things. Uh, yep. Documents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My there's a there's a book that I I think a lot of kids are read now called and it's oh I don't know the name or the author that's real helpful to everybody, but it's about filling your bucket. Right. Okay. And it's it's a book that explains to kids the ways that when you offer someone some kindness, you compliment them, you help them with something, you're filling their bucket. And when you criticize them or laugh at them or do something to undermine them, you're emptying their bucket. And the the moral of that whole story is it's a good way to move through the world to be filling other people's buckets. Like this is what we want for ourselves and each other. This is what we're talking about on a kid level, right? We got to fill somebody's bucket. You got to tell them they look nice sometimes and 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 do those things that take energy and effort. That's why we don't always do them, but they're super important. They matter. 
Um, well, let's let's um, we've we've talked about you know kind of some of the things that we can do to make a better relationship, the value of relationships. So let's maybe kind of summarize a couple of points for those those things, those underlying things that make a good relationship work. So we talked about trust. We talked about making, uh, kind of making those little things, doing little things. What else are we missing here that underlie that, the happy, the happy romantic relationship? I really like things to come in threes. Yeah, me too. But I'm, I'm yeah, but I'm reaching hard because, okay. because so much of it is about small things. Let's, let's focus in a little bit and say okay. among the small things we do is the way that we communicate. So I dismissed communication in that trust post, but let's circle back to it because it's not unimportant. So some of those small things are gestures. The, I'm going to sit down and fold this blasted thing of laundry with you. That is a gesture. It's a helpfulness. But the ways that we talk to each other are also sort of a really core category of how we can build our relationships up and make them better. You know, there's a real emphasis that I think a lot of people have learned about in the culture called I statements, like I feel when uh-huh. you walk past me when I'm folding laundry, I, I feel unappreciated, right? But what what some scholars have found is that the very most skilled couples aren't really totally using those. Those are good practice when you have really tough co- communication and you need to learn a new way of focusing things. But the really top folks are just talking to each other with a general tone of kindness and consideration all the time. And so that looks like um, trying to trying not to blame your partner, trying to give them the benefit of the doubt most of the time, trying to offer them ge- genuine um, gratitude for something that they do, even if you kind of expect them to do it. Like saying thank you is very powerful in my family life. Um, Even though oftentimes it's something I knew was going to happen or I thought, I thought should happen. I still am going to say thank you. Um, Most of the time, not all of the time. So I think that trying to communicate with as much sort of positivity and positive regard as you can is something we can work on. And I think just as a summarizing kind of concept, especially when you're in a difficult time in a relationship, it can feel like none of these small things are going to be enough. And in some relationships, maybe they're not, but there's nothing too small. In relationships, positivity tends to be kind of a domino effect. As you do really small things, one or two or three small things, that gets reciprocated a little bit and you can build on it. So there's really nothing too small to to try, um, especially if you can do it frequently. But even if you can't, it's worth doing some of these things. It's worth leaving just enough energy for some small gesture of loving kindness because it often can really build into other things that make the relationship feel easier, um, better, and to help it flourish. Very nice. Tyler, thanks so much for your time today. So let me just say uh, uh, Tyler's blog again is on psychology today and it's called Assembly Required. I'll put a link in the show notes, but thank you so much for your time. This is great. This was really fun. Thanks for having me, Mark. Thanks for listening to Flourishing in the World. 
We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and if you did, won't you share it with a friend and leave us a rating wherever you might be listening. Until next time, this is Mark Bonica, willing good for all of you. Thank you.